I've been in a Grove 102 flying and rotor on toe, and it, it, was, it was such a powerful rotor that it kicked my leg from one rudder pedal up over the top of the of the control um, panel into the other footwell. So I had I had both I had my left and right leg both in the in the same footwell, and so the, you, you get yourself you know untangled and, and set back up, but. Yeah, that's extremely uh, powerful, so. There was a mid-air crash uh, of my friend and another competitor, and uh, it was a, in a really big gaggle. So that was the moment I realized that we really should look out, look out, look out, and don't really rely on FLARM or any other anti-collision system. And about, I don't know, 1,500 feet above the airport, I start thermaling and I look back over my shoulder and I see, you know, big honking bird. <laughs> you know, the Golden Eagle is a really, really impressive bird. Hello, Soaring community. What is going on? Our pre-flight checklist is finished. We are ready to launch episode 90. My name is Chuck. I'm your host coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. I've been looking at Instagram and Facebook. Wow. Looks like a lot of you are jumping back in the gliders, getting some lift. The thermals are starting to pop. We are ready to get some flights in. I actually had a flight not too long ago. Got back up in the air a little bit, and wow, it, it was great. Let's do this. Thank you for joining us again here on the podcast. You are why we keep working hard to bring you more great soaring content. I do want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to help the show financially if you're able to do that and you want to help us out all you need to do is go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky or you can click the link in the show notes patreon pilots do get some extra perks and benefits it's pretty cool you can also go to our website soaringthesky.com click the support the show tab man do we have a great show lined up for you today i'm excited to share it with you now our featured guest today not only flies gliders but he also tows them. Casey Schultz is a commercial-powered pilot who flies out of Southern California. He has over 650 hours in powered and gliders. He has over 1,000 tows in the tow plane. He has a lot of great stories he's going to share with us today. He tells us what it's like being a tow pilot as well as a glider pilot and that unique perspective that he gets flying both sides of the rope. We are then going to head to the Czech Republic for our soaring safety segment and catch up with Barbara Mrftva. You may know her as the Gliding Junkie there on Instagram. She currently flies with the Czech National Gliding Team. She will bring us some great safety tips and talk about what she's been up to since we last spoke to her. She also has some pretty cool stories she's going to share with us today as well. Dale Masters, author and glider pilot. He's going to be back to bring us another soaring tale with Dale. And this one is titled, I Hadn't the Foggiest. Dale had a great story on the last episode, if you didn't catch it, especially for you paraglider pilots out there. You're definitely going to want to check that one out. Dale is always great. Thank you, Dale, for sharing your adventures. We greatly appreciate that. We're then going to head over to Blairstown, New Jersey, catch up with Daniel Sazen. He's going to bring us our tips and techniques segment on this episode. He's been up in the air most recently, and some super interesting flights he had with Bald Eagle and some Golden Eagles. You can click on the show notes to check out some really cool, awesome shots his girlfriend took from the glider. So let's get this episode launched already. Casey Scholes, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you here today. How are you? Thank you uh, so much, Chuck, for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. As I mentioned to you earlier, I didn't I didn't need to be convinced too much to uh, come talk about uh, gliding and, and flying the tow plane. So 
uh, doing well this evening. <laughs> right. I, I think we had briefly met, we were talking a little bit before we started recording this, but we had briefly met in California when I was out there for a little bit, but it's nice to be able to actually get to know you a little better and talk to you today. But so how did you get into flying? Yeah, um, we, we, we did meet for, for one. And I, like I think I said, I was, I was running to the tow plane, I think, as I, as I shook your hand. Uh, and uh, so I'm glad to be able to come back and, and reconnect. Um, I got into flying, um, I think, like most, um, I, th- I think like most people in, in aviation, like it was an obsession since I was a little kid. Um, and for my 17th birthday, I was given an intro flight um, in a power airplane. And I uh, worked through my private pilot license. I believe I got that when I was 20 years old. It was in December of uh, 2001, I believe. It was right after September 11th. And um, got into power flying. And um, interestingly enough, my grandfather flew um, Waco uh, gliders in World War II. Um, He never actually flew in an invasion, but he flew the troop transport uh, Waco glider. So I always knew uh, th- there was things like gliders. Um, him and his uh, his sons, my uncles, flew some sailplanes. Um, so I knew it was a thing you could do, and I knew it was something I always wanted to to get into. But it took um, it took me after graduating college and moving to Southern California that I actually got into uh, flying uh, sailplanes. Well, that's some amazing history in your family there. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. We had the Kalamazoo Air Zoo and uh, in that museum sits a, a Waco glider, um, from the rafters. Oh, wow. uh, and interestingly enough, I think, um, they have, people have made efforts to try to get them, uh, airworthy and to fly. And the, uh, FAA, I think looks at their, their, their safety record, uh, and, and says, that's not going to happen. But uh, so I, I grew up knowing, or, or knowing about uh, gliders and uh, always knew it was something I was going to get into. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about your flying gliders, of course, and tow planes. But let's start with the tow planes and how things are over on that side of the rope, the side with the guillotine on it. <laughs> First off, how many total hours do you have flying tow? And roughly how many tows have you made in your towing career so far? Yeah, um, I had to sit down and do the math on this one. Um, Total time between gliders and power planes, I'm, I'm, I think over 600 hours, probably closer to 700 hours. Um, about 200 of that is flying the the Piper Pawnee uh, towing gliders, and, and I worked out the math on that. And if I did it correctly, I'm probably approaching a thousand tows, oh, uh, wow. which actually surprised me. Um, yeah, um, you know, a typical tow day, um, I'll actually get three hours of of engine running time on the, uh, the tow plane. It, it could be as much as four, but typically it's three and probably anywhere between 15 and 20 toes in a day. And you're mostly doing what? 2000 feet out there. It, it depends on the conditions. Um, uh, it's rare at our glider port that we have no lift, but on those days, it's a lot of pattern toes with the students. Okay. And those are the days I probably have the, the highest number of toes and that's 1500 feet to the pattern. But, um, on um, on other days, it, it can be toes to the mountains, and that can um, that can be a fifteen minute round trip uh, when it's all said and done, and that might be as high as uh, five thousand feet um, above the ground, uh, or sometimes even higher, which uh, would take us up to about uh, nine thousand feet above sea level. 
Oh, okay. Specific to the uh, Glide report that you tow out of currently, what's the single biggest concern or worry you have on any given day there? Students, private pilots doing mountain tows, is it power lines, maybe those super hot days, or maybe just an old tow plane having some mechanical issues? What do you run into? I, I kind of thought about this one. You know, things like density altitude. Um, I have to say, actually, uh, where I fly out of, it's the the high desert, the Mojave Desert. That's pretty routine. That's that's something uh, you I've just learned to cope with, and it's just part of your um, your daily life. So it, it, it certainly is a factor, but it's not um, maybe my sole focus. Um, as far as the the conditions, it would be wind uh, is the the number one thing I'm uh, probably concerned about. And if the weather is changing, sometimes it can be very dynamic out there. So I'm probably most focused on wind. You know, um, we are a a flight school and uh, we fly with a lot of students and it's uh, always a concern on my mind, but I'd have to say the biggest thing that I worry about is becoming complacent. Uh, I think complacency is probably the, the biggest danger. You know, like I said, 15, 20, 25 toes in a day, uh, you could, you could get, um, you could do something uh, that you normally wouldn't do. Uh, like examples, like 15, 20 starts a day, I might leave a mag off and then on the takeoff roll, I, I, I'm down one magneto. And so consequently, I'm not developing as much horsepower. I might not have set the, the mixture in the right position. So complacency and um, uh, using my checklist to kind of combat that complacency is probably one of my, my, my biggest concerns. There, there's lots of things to, th- to consider when you're out flying tow. I think one of the things that surprised me the most uh, going from the glider into the tow plane um, was just how busy uh, tow pilots are. Um, we're not just up there eating a sandwich or you know drinking our favorite beverage. Um, yeah, I, my 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 head is on a swivel. There's uh, you know I'm looking at the health of the airplane, uh, cylinder head temperatures, um, you know leaning for best performance. I'm looking out for other traffic. Uh, on a busy day at our glider port, there could be you know upwards of 10, 12 gliders up in the air um, that are flying around and uh, two tow planes, sometimes three tow planes. Uh, it can get very busy. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the lookout for, uh, for, uh, for mid-air collision. So I, I, I'm, I'm busy uh, considering things, but it, I think the biggest thing I would worry about is, you know, after a, a day of towing in the hot sun, because it, it gets hot in Southern California, 115 degrees isn't unheard of, you get dehydrated, would be becoming complacent. Uh, about what's going on. Uh, fortunately, as far as um, the, yeah, the tow planes, they are um, of an older vintage uh, because they don't make the Piper Pawnee anymore. And we'll talk more about it later. But mechanically, uh, those airplanes are very sound. Um, they're maintained to a very high level. In fact, um, uh, a mechanical failure due to uh, lack of maintenance or, or, or just being old is probably the furthest thing from my mind. Um, if I were to have a uh, an engine failure, it would it would it would be very surprising. Uh, not that I wouldn't be unprepared for it, but it's not typically um, at the forefront of my mind. Of course, I'm always thinking about where I'm going to go in the event of an engine failure. But I think uh, something like the wind uh, or weather would be a much a much bigger factor uh, in my day to day concerns. So, sticking with the tow plane for a moment, can you share with listeners what type of tow plane you kind of did, what type of tow plane you fly? But some of the basic specs of the plane, as well as maybe give us a feel for what it's like to fly, or what corks or other interesting things that 
glider pilots may not even know. Sure. Um, it's a it's a PA-25 Piper Pawnee. Uh, and I think it, they're a pretty common site uh, at glider operations in North America. It's um, a former crop duster. Uh, and I can't think of a better aircraft for towing gliders. Um, it is built like a like a pickup truck. I mean, it was really designed to be sold to farmers so that they could do their own um, uh, chemical applications on their fields. And it is it's simple. It's a steel tube uh, frame. It's covered with um, uh, fabric for the most part, and very docile, easy to fly. Uh, the the tow planes we fly, we have three Pawnees, have uh, 260 horsepower engines in them. So extremely powerful. The Pawnee was designed to uh, carry um, almost its own weight in fuel and um, and chemicals. And so I think it, it has a, a gross weight of 2,900 pounds and an empty weight of about 1,600 pounds. So, uh, and we and we never load uh, the glider that heavy. We carry full fuel and, and a pilot, but uh, it has a tremendous amount of performance. I only get to experience that on my very first flight of the day. Uh, because the rest of the day I'm I'm, I'm towing a glider, which uh, it decreases its performance noticeably, but uh, tremendous performer. Uh, the cockpit extremely comfortable, uh, very wide. I think the thing that might surprise uh, glider pilots and other um, power pilots is the the amount of deflection of the controls. Um, you sit uh, pretty high up in the cockpit, but you sit with your feet very wide. Uh, kind of far apart because that's where the rudder pedals are and the stick is between your legs. You know, the a full displacement is, you know, from, from center line all the way over to, to your left knee. So it's um, quite a bit different than, um, say, in a glider where the, the control displacements tend to be a lot smaller or even uh, like your run-of-the-mill Cessna, Cessna where you're just kind of moving the control yoke. Um, it's, it's almost kind of comical how much uh, you, you move your, your arms around in there. But... Um, and I think the other thing that may, might surprise uh, glider pilots um, is, you know, that maybe they have a bad day on tow, especially if they're a student and they're really yanking the uh, the tow pilot around. And I, I might I might get in trouble with other tow pilots for mentioning this, but it's not as bad as the glider pilot thinks up in the tow plane. Uh, right. We, of course, we can we, we can feel you back there, you know, moving us around and yeah. and we put a little control inputs in, but. Um, it's, it's never as bad, I think, as it is maybe in the glider. The ride's pretty smooth. I, I've never gotten whiplash from anyone. Uh, and so I think that might surprise them as well. Oh, and, and another kind of quirk of the Pawnee in, in particular is, um, and if you come out to our operation, you'll see the tow pilots slipping the aircraft all the time. We, we slip just like the, uh, the, the gliders do, uh, learning to, to, to practice the no air brakes landing. But the, the Pawnee has a tendency to actually tuck over. It'll nose over uh, in a slip. And so the first time you slip it, your 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 instinct is to pull back on the stick to keep it from tucking its nose over and diving on you. And what happens is it will, it'll start to buck. Uh, and it can, be, it can be quite alarming at first. And you actually learn that if you go into the slip with a little forward stick pressure, for whatever reason, you, you don't blank the elevator as much and it actually slips very, very nicely. Um, and so it's a great way to... Um, Kill, kill energy if you're um, trying to, to run a, uh, a smooth operation with the, the tow plane. Um, yeah, the other thing is it's, it's, it's just a great flyer, um, real powerful trim. I could fly hands off, but, you know, I, I don't, but um, it, it's that good. I can, I can pitch for 60 knots, trim away the control forces, and, 
uh, it'll pretty much stay there as long as the uh, the guy behind me is, is behaving himself. <laughs> now, it's, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot about the tow plane that you like, but is there maybe something that you wish the manufacturer did differently? Maybe something a little better? Jeez, oh, it's... um you know, it, it's, it's tough to get into. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, there was a Instagram, I think video posted of me, we called it, um, Pawnee yoga and every tow pilot has their own method for getting into it. It, 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 it was, it was designed kind of for manufacture, for ease of manufacture, for ease of maintainability. So you enter through the windows, which are just, uh, pieces of, um, paraspects that just kind of fold down. They have a a frame and you kind of find a way to kind of fold yourself in to the aircraft. You walk up on the wing and, uh, and get into it. It's, um, it's not, uh, it's not a deal breaker, but, uh, it's certainly, yeah, uh, gives you some pause. Um, it's not very well sealed and we don't have any, uh, any heat in the, um, in the winter time. And so I've, I've flown in ski gloves before it can be, I mean, you can, you can see daylight coming through the, the fabric at some points. Huh. Uh, so it can be cold, but that, that's also a positive in the summertime. It's, it's well ventilated. Yeah. Um, but, uh, otherwise, no, it's, um, it, it's kind of the perfect, uh, plane for, for doing tow operations. That is kind of a cool factor, you know, when you have to climb in like that, at least it looks cool from, from the standpoint of watching. <laughs> yeah. And, and with, with a thousand toes under my belt, I've, I've, I've developed a technique right. uh, to get in and it, it seems to work. And you, you remember things like, um, Sometimes I'll, I'll move the, the tr- I'll run the trim all the way forward. So the, the, the control stick is all the way forward so that when I go to get in, I can kind of, you know, slide my leg around the, the control stick and, uh, and do that. And the other thing too is, you know, it is, it, it is an older aircraft and, um, it does tend to, uh, I actually get a lot of cuts on my hands from you know, different you know pieces of safety wire sticking out different places and, and things like that. So, uh, but not, nothing that's a deal breaker. It's a, it's a great plane to fly. So what's the biggest oh no moment? Maybe you were flying in the tow plane and maybe it wasn't even on tow, but during a morning warm up or heavy crosswind landing. And was there anything you or others could maybe learn from that moment or was it just one off random freak thing? Uh, Yeah, I hope um, there's always a a lesson to be learned and um, uh, from from incidents or even just from from kind of minor things, I think that's a real waste of, of experience if something's not learned. Um, I, I haven't had uh, too many um, catastrophic, or I haven't had any catastrophic uh, kind of uh, scenarios. Things like I've I've, been, I've I've completed a tow, I've come all the way back to the airport, and I've been in the downwind, and I hit a little turbulence, and my seatbelt came off, uh, <laughs> which was surprising uh, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and, and my thoughts were uh, at first where I need to get on the ground, um, and maybe soaring pilots, uh, th- that's a, a healthy mentality, but in, in the power world you, with an engine, uh, and an engine that's running, you have time to, um, to, uh, to fix the problem. And so you fly the, the aircraft first is what we're taught. And I wasn't committed to landing. So, uh, rather than try to fumble with my, my seatbelt at a, at a low level, I, uh, climbed back to a safe uh, altitude, trimmed away the control pressures. And then, um, it's, it's a four point restraint system. So it took a little wrangling to, to get it back on, but yeah. So the, the, the important lesson there was, was fly the airplane. Um, you know, I, uh, I think this past summer, uh, climbing out, I was about maybe 150, 200 feet and, um, 
the 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 control the uh, the trim wheel is a it's like a it's like the crank on an old uh, automobile window. In fact, it looks exactly like that. And it um, as I was climbing out, I was trimming away the control pressures, and it came off in my hand. The um, oh wow the 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 trim control, which by itself wouldn't be a uh, a concern, but the way the the Pawnee is rigged is there's bungees inside of that. And so the, the, the trim immediately ran away to, oh, wow. to full forward uh, trim when wow. I was about 150 feet above the ground. And uh, it, definitely startling, uh, to say the least. Um, but, you know, your first thought is, is fly the aircraft. And it just took a tremendous amount of um, back stick to, to keep it from nosing over. And so once the immediate uh, kind of emergency was over and I realized that I still had elevated control and I still had, uh, you know, a full authority, just required a lot more strength. Uh, my next consideration was, you know, do I cut away uh, the glider behind me? And uh, and this is all happening in a matter of, you know, milliseconds. But, you know, my next thought is if, if I release him here, I'm, I'm actually putting him, uh, you know, 150, 200 feet above the ground. I'm putting him in a real emergency situation and I don't need to. And so uh, my next thought is let's let's get another 200 feet higher and then I can readdress it. And as I climbed out and realized I had the situation under control, I could um, actually kept him on, flew him up to, to pattern altitude, uh, released him, and then very slowly made it back uh, to the airport, landed, and uh, taxied right to the hangar because uh, that aircraft was uh, was done for the day. Uh, it was an easy uh, fix to, to remedy. But yeah, the important thing there was um, uh, was not to just immediately uh, cut away uh uh, the glider behind me. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was, you know, a, a scary moment. You know, other things, lessons I've learned is, is thinking that a glider has released and diving away when they, when they actually weren't. Uh, and, uh, I think I certainly surprised, uh, an instructor and a student doing that once that was early on. So now I, I always, I always confirm we have uh, wiffle balls on the end of our tow ropes, uh, to pre- prevent abrasion. I always make sure I see those wiffle balls fall away from the glider and that I've confirmed that they're away before I, I make my turn back to the airport. Yeah. I um, mean, with the trim, you know, you, you didn't panic and you handled the situation. And I think that's a important lesson we can learn flying that sure you fly the airplane and you don't panic and you try to take care of the situation or it's going to get really bad. Yeah. Fly, fly the aircraft first. Um, uh, you know, the, the other thing too, as a tow pilot, you, um, and I hope other tow pilots feel this way is you have a, you have a responsibility to that, um, that glider behind you. Uh, and I never want to put them in a, I, I never want to do something that makes it worse for them. Uh, and so if I can, uh, uh, if, if, if I can continue to climb and, and fly the aircraft, I'm going to try to, you know, pull them out of a, of a bad situation as well. I don't want to make things worse by, by cutting them loose. Um, and so you, you do have to recognize that responsibility as a tow pilot. What's the two or three most annoying things that you've experienced on the tow side of the rope? Surely there are things that students or, or privates do that, you know, sometimes you wish they didn't or did less of. Yeah, you know, um, the, the Soaring Academy where I tow, we are a, we, we are a flight school. And so I, I think if I went there kind of with the mentality that students weren't going to, and different students kind of doing, making the same mistakes or anything like that, if I went there with the mentality that, that wasn't going to be the case that that wouldn't be the right uh, mentality to have. So I can't say that uh, students or, or even the, the private pilots uh, that fly out of there do anything that uh, annoy me too much. So I, I had to think hard about this. But the, the biggest thing I mentioned is hard to get in and out of the, uh, the tow plane is 
sometimes uh, we, we park our, our Pawnee at midfield and uh, we have a hold short line that no one crosses unless they're ready to, to fly. And sometimes at one end of the runway, a, a glider and a golf cart will, will, will taxi up. They're being towed out to the runway and they'll pull right up to the hold short line. And so I head out to my tow plane and I get strapped in and, and then they, they release the, the, uh, the glider and then they sit there for another 10 minutes and I'm all belted in, ready to go. And so that's, um, probably, you know, the, the only annoyance that I can, uh, think of. Yeah. It, you know, that's, uh, that, that's <laughs> probably the only, only thing that maybe sometimes I go, Oh geez, if they, could they just take off already? But then if you put yourself in the, in the mind of maybe the instructor or there's the, the student, there's a lot of important instruction that's going on at that whole short line. So you're patient and, uh, and uh, eventually they want to go up probably the student probably wants to go up just as badly as, as I do. And uh, they get out there. Uh, you know, maybe other things too is, uh, and this probably is more to do with the instructors um, because we don't let uh, students really taxi uh, with any kind of speed near the tow planes. But sometimes we'll have instructors that uh, will taxi the land. I'll be getting ready to go take the next tow and they'll, they'll taxi right in front of my uh, tow plane. And run out of energy right there. So then oh, you have to wait man. for the ground crew to, to move them. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- those are those are slight annoyances, but uh, nothing that to get upset about. As a tow pilot, I know you probably spent your fair share of time looking at other launches. In all the launches that you've seen, what are the things that glider pilots regularly do that are beyond annoying, but that are downright dangerous? And you wish maybe as a tow pilot you saw less of. You probably have seen some things, right? Uh, fortunately, um, nothing repetitive. We, we have a, a pretty healthy safety culture, uh, where I tow at, at the Soaring Academy. And so if, if I, or, or one of the instructors or even just another pilot were to see someone doing something repeatedly, that was a threat to safety. Um, it would be, it would be addressed uh, very quickly. And if it couldn't be addressed, then I, I don't think that pilot would be allowed to fly there. So, so fortunately I haven't experienced a lot of that, you know, certainly one of the, the, the biggest dangers, I think, uh, as a tow pilot, and it's, it's, a, it's dangerous because there's so little time to address it would be something like, um, a, uh, a student or a pilot initially right on uh, takeoff, getting too high on tow. I don't have much to combat that once I run out of, uh, half stick, um, because as the, as the glider rises up, they're going to pull my tail upwards, which is going to force my nose down. And I'll try to counter that with back stick. Um, yeah. you know, all, then all I have then is, is the release or the guillotine. And so that would, you know, be something that's concerning, you know, there's things like, uh, maybe not doing proper weight and balance, or I know there's certainly been instances of the gliders elevator not being connected. Uh, these are some of the older gliders and, uh, they, they get, they get flying and they immediately they kind of kite up behind the, the tow plane. So that'd be something that would be very concerning and something I'm always on guard for. But as far as, um, you know, seeing a, a, a pilot flying at, at our organization that does something repeatedly, I, I can't say, I can't say I've seen anything that's uh, anything twice, at least I'll put it that way. Well, that's good. That that just means it's a, a well-oiled machine. Like, you know, when I was there, I saw that definitely very focused. You guys are out there doing everyone knows what they have to do and you get the job done and it's very safe atmosphere. Sure. And I, I flew, uh, gliders, um, 
at that same site um, uh, many years ago uh, before it was a soaring academy under uh, it had a, a different owner at the time and uh, i certainly saw the flip side of the coin where safety wasn't a priority it was certainly um it was kind of a free-for-all environment and uh so i've seen the the other side of things and i can certainly appreciate now um the attention to safety that we we have out there absolutely what advice do you have for other tow pilots out there that can you maybe share a couple of specific stories that show some real world examples of things maybe both seasoned or especially new tow pilots might find really helpful something that comes to mind for me because it applies both in the um in the tow plane world the power world and in flying gliders is the idea of um being uh, spring-loaded to make a decision and that specifically on takeoff this was not something that i really started to appreciate i think until i started you know, once I got my, my commercial uh, power rating and commercial glider rating, but the idea of the emergency, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see it, but the emergency is that I'll make it to pattern altitude uh, or I'll make it to a safe altitude, let's say 400 feet uh, being a safe altitude. Because at, at 400 feet in, in a glider, you have some time to, uh, you can almost fly a full circuit uh, pretty typically with the winds. And so the, the emergency is, and the surprise is making it to 400 feet. Uh, and so I, both in the tow plane and in a glider on the initial roll, I'm thinking if, you know, in the tow plane, if I lost my engine or in the glider, if I lost a, a tow rope, where am I going to go right now? And, you know, you know, I'll say straight ahead, straight ahead. And, um, you know, on the initial climb out, uh, I've got my emergency field picked out already. And, you know, then at 200 feet in a glider, I'm uh, 180 degree turn back to the, uh, to the airport. Um, and in the tow plane, I'm going to continue to, uh, an emergency field, you know, sh- basically kind of between the, uh, the wings straight ahead and being spring loaded for that, that decision. So that the surprise is once you make it to a safe altitude, that should be the surprise. And it takes away quite a bit of the startle effect when something bad does happen and, uh, makes the decision-making easy. So I would, I always encourage anyone I fly with to really think about, uh, being spring loaded. Um, and that also applies to being ready to pull the release uh, as well. Uh, certainly, if I run out of uh, control movements, you know, I, if someone gets too high on me and I don't have enough backs, I'm going to pull the release right away. But, you know, being ready to to pull the release um, and and be spring and not not hesitate with that unnecessarily. Now, you've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but specifically about flying a tow plane, uh, what has made you a better glider pilot? And is there anything about flying a glider that made you a better tow pilot? Yeah, so uh, getting on the other side of the rope, and, and because I initially, even though I had my private power license, I got my private glider and, and flew that for a while. And it wasn't until I, I think I had my, my commercial power license that I, I started flying tow planes. So I had, I had uh, time in gliders before I flew the, the, uh, the tow plane. And so getting to the tow plane, uh, I was really struck by the um, you 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 kind of a uh, it's, it's it's see our European friends won't understand this but it's like being the catcher in in baseball you're you're kind of directing the the entire field and as a tow pilot you have that kind of same responsibility I, you know I'm responsible for my own life and the the two lives maybe of the people behind me but also the the other um, uh, pilots that might be up there flying. And, and so it definitely made me much more aware of, of my surroundings, certainly the, the risk of midair collisions, keeping my head on a swivel, 
And I don't think, you know, when I was just a glider pilot, I don't think I ever looked left before releasing, uh, even though I, I, I probably should have. And, and now I'm looking both ways to see that when I, re- when I re- release in a glider that my, my tow pilot isn't going to turn into anyone and, uh, and that I, me and the glider are not going to turn into anyone to our right. Uh, because in, in the U.S., you know, for our European friends, the tow pilot goes left and the glider goes right. And as a flying gliders and then going um, to a tow plane, or do I have that correct or, or vice versa, um, is, you know, with a thousand toes, I've, I've basically gotten a thousand free attempts to find lift. Um, you know, I, I get to piggyback on everyone's flight. So being a glider pilot, and a tow pilot, uh, I feel like I'm much more in tuned with what a glider pilot is looking for, uh, as far as lift, um, as far as uh, how to fly the plane. In fact, we're fortunate at the Soaring Academy that pretty much all of our tow pilots are glider pilots, uh, and there's a marked difference, I think, flying behind a tow pilot that uh, doesn't have their glider rating versus one that does. I think if it's just a power pilot and you, you, you ask them to take you to the lift, they kind of go, you, you know, in this direction or this direction, they, they, they kind of ask you. As a glider pilot, I'm sitting in the tow plane now, and I know what it's like to be on the other end of the rope and specifically what it feels like maybe to be paying for the tow and, you know, wanting to get the most bang for your buck. And so, you know, I'm, I'm out there, you know, reading the conditions. I may have had 10 flights before I take you up to find some lift. So I'll... um. I'll do whatever I can to, to get you into lift. So it's made me much better, I think, at, at finding lift and not that I'm an expert by any means, but I can certainly sympathize because as a, as a, a young private pilot paying for these toes and, and getting shot down or not find the lift or falling out of lift or not knowing if I was in lift when I was, was on tow was, was a huge frustration for me. So, you know, I'll, I'll do anything I can. To, to find the lift for uh, the glider pilot behind me now and and do it uh, you know as quickly as possible and, and even things like uh, before we go up if I if I see that pilot on the ground and talk to him I might say yep I was just up you know 20 minutes ago and this is where I found lift and uh, you should look for you know these kind of conditions and and so yeah I think it's it's flying gliders and now being in the tow plane has just made me much better at uh, being able to find lift and read the conditions oh absolutely I agree and I mean, I've been behind both types of tow pilots that were glider pilots and one that weren't. And yeah, it's so nice when you're in the glider and sometimes we don't even say anything and he dumps me right there. You know, I get immediate lift as soon as I get off tow. And yeah, just it just makes it so much nicer. You don't have to sit there and search. It's like you're ready to roll. Yeah. And then there's, you know, I think the usual things that people point to, the differences between gliders and and tow planes, like uh, rudder usage. I mean, it's definitely, you know, flying gliders has, has upped my game uh, and be able to use the rudders. Um, I think a big one, too, is in the power world, I don't think this is emphasized so much, but if I ever get in trouble in any situation, whether it's a glider or a power plane, you know, my, my first reaction is usually going to be to push the stick forward, which um, definitely comes from the glider world. You know, speed is life yeah. in a glider, especially up in the mountains. And, you know, you can't stall a, an aircraft that's unloaded. And, and so um, I think I've definitely brought that into the power world more is if any kind of thing, something were to happen, even if I got close to the terrain, the last thing I want to do is stall and spin into terrain. So my, my, my reaction now is to, to push on the stick 
for the most part. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. So over to the gliders now. I understand from our co-producer, Mitch, you don't do a lot of cross-country in gliders, but you have had a fair number of hours flying in the mountains around the Soaring Academy there just outside of LA. Can you talk specifically about mountain soaring at the site as well as the train and the weather? And can you kind of take us through the season there and what types of lift happen through the course of the season? Yeah. So we, um, you know, we are a a flight school. So a lot of what we're doing is we're, we're training private and commercial glider pilots. And we do have a a squadron of, of, uh, they're private owners of gliders that, that, that fly out of our facility as well. And they do go cross country. We are up in the Mojave desert you know, people that listen get a chance to come out and fly with us. So they'll see what the conditions are like. We can certainly go long distances. Uh, I don't myself do a lot of cross country. That more has to do with I don't own my own glider. I don't have a ground crew. There are certainly land out options uh, near us, and those tend to be airports. Uh, but you would then need a, a ground crew to come retrieve you. We don't have large agricultural fields. Like I grew up in in uh, Michigan. And it's funny, I, I go back there now and, and when I land and I see all these, these green fields, you know, every place is a land out field. But in, in the Mojave Desert, we have a lot of big rocks in the desert, pretty uneven terrain, and then things called Joshua trees. Uh, and pe- your listeners can, can look up what a Joshua tree looks like, but it's not till you stand next to it that you, you see how imposing they are. Uh, and they would, they would do a pretty good job of ripping a glider apart. There aren't a lot of options. There are some agricultural fields by us, but there aren't a lot of options for land out. So we just make sure we we maintain our minimum altitudes as far as distance from the airport. But the nice thing about our site is we are in the desert, but we're about um, five to seven miles to the mountains. And I think a lot of people think Los Angeles, they think palm trees and Hollywood, uh, but they don't realize that the entire city is ringed by, you know, nine, 10,000 foot mountains. And we're immediately on the other side of those in the desert. And so a seven mile tow, and we have a 9,400 foot mountain uh, that's right there. Uh, we have smaller mountains that are terrific generators of thermals in the summertime. Uh, in fact, we have one called Morning Mountain because in summertime uh, by 10 a.m., there's usually pretty good thermals rising off of it. And in the summertime, you can take some pretty low tows, even just kind of out over the dry riverbeds uh, that have, are filled with rock and they're already reflecting some thermals. So Summertime, tremendous uh, thermal conditions. It's not uncommon for just off tow to immediately climb to 12,000, 14,000 feet in a thermal. And that's that's very widespread. You can kind of fly all over the uh, uh, the Mojave Desert there uh, for quite some distance and be guaranteed some lift. We also have convergence in that area. We have There's two uh, mountain passes, one to the east and west of us. And we'll get the, um, the marine air flowing in and it... Uh, will create convergence lift. And I've certainly been flying along at 14,000 feet, you know, 80 knots and still going up at five to seven knots, not able to really come down unless I 
pull spoilers, but uh, and that season, that our th- our summer season goes from about two weeks ago started to to light off. It'll go all through the spring and summer into the fall. We pretty much have consistent thermals that can take you very very high, and then um, wintertime we have uh, we even have wintertime thermals. They're not as common. They tend to be more challenging, but when we get a south wind, we get some fantastic uh, wave. Uh, a northwest wind will bring some uh, great ridge lift. Although, because the way our mountains are shaped, they have a lot of faceted faces, kind of facing different directions. You don't get the long, continuous uh, ridge runs that maybe people have seen back east in uh, in Pennsylvania. But we we kind of have it all, and we have kind of lift all throughout the year, pretty much flyable conditions. I mean, the only thing that really shuts us down uh, are very, very strong south winds, and that because we only have a an east-west strip there. You know, the, people in the, the Crystal Squadron, which um, fly cross-country out of there, they've taken off at 11 a.m. and flown, you know, across the uh, Mojave Desert to the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they've flown up the Sierra Nevadas, and they routinely go to Nevada. And I believe in the mid-2000s, someone even made it to uh, Oregon in a day. So there's, yeah, definitely opportunities for uh, some record-setting flights. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one of the reasons I was a, a, a I moved to Southern California was the, the the great soaring conditions that we have there. Yeah, that's a long soaring season. That's uh... yeah, it 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 goes year round. Uh, it's um, I think we're kind of spoiled. You know, a few weeks ago, people were kind of grumbling about the fact that you know they can only get four or five thousand feet above the ground. And I know back in Michigan, uh, <laughs> soaring back there, that would be that's a, that's a phenomenal day if you can do that. Yeah, right. It's a good <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> yeah, we're we're a bit spoiled. Sticking with mountain soaring, can you share maybe two or three specific safety thoughts that you maybe help glider pilots, say, from the plains or other flat regions and soaring sites that maybe they want to go do some mountain soaring? I bet you've either seen or heard or personally experienced just how powerful the mountains can be, kind of like a big wave. Oh, uh, yeah. And besides flying the tow planes, I do a lot of uh, glider rides. And so I get to to explain to a lot of non-pilots, this is kind of like sailing or this is like surfing, you know, trying to read the conditions and, and find where the lift is. Um, that's, you know, a, a good analogy usually. So I grew up in Michigan uh, in, in the flatlands. It's only 500 feet above sea level. Like I said, you know, green fields everywhere. You know, as a young pilot, you'd hear about mountain flying, mountain flying, the risk of it and the, the dangers of it. And and I, I didn't didn't appreciate that until I did move to Los Angeles and I did start flying in the mountains. And, uh, and now I can reflect on that and, and realize that it's a very dynamic environment. Um, and you could very easily get into trouble. Uh, even experienced uh, mountain pilots can get into trouble, but you know, some of the things you learn, I think number one is, uh, speed is life in the mountains, especially in the glider. If you, kind of ever are flying a glider in, in the mountains or even a power plane and you start to get that that tingling kind of spider sense that maybe something's off speed up and um, uh, that gives you more options the other thing i think to think about is that you got to get comfortable flying close to terrain especially as a glider pilot that's where some of the best lift is but with that you need to remember to to speed up and always have an out and so that's something i'm constantly thinking about both in the tow plane and then the glider is is my speed and, and what is my my out? Where, where's my escape away from the rising terrain? Uh, fortunately, I've gotten to hone that skill uh, in, in the mountains here in Southern California. But yeah, there's there's 
definitely opportunities to get into into trouble if you're not thinking a few steps ahead. I mean, they are powerful conditions. Certainly other pilots that maybe have flown in wave, more specifically rotor, can uh, think about just how powerful the conditions are in that we're in, uh, in the, in the tow plane, you know, I would expect normally to see four or five, 600 feet a minute, depending on the temperature outside of, of climb rate. Uh, and I've certainly been in situations going through sink or rotor where I'm seeing, you know, even at full power and, and climbing away as hard as I can two to 300 feet a minute down. Um, now the good news is generally the, the sink isn't widespread. So I can, you know, I, I know that if I just keep, you know, going in, in one direction, I'll get out of it. But um, that's, you know, extremely powerful atmosphere. I've been in a Grobe 102 flying in rotor on tow. And it it was such a powerful rotor that it kicked my leg from one rudder pedal up over the top of the the control um, panel into the other footwell. Oh, wow. So I had had both, had my left and right leg both in the (laughs) the same footwell. And so you you get yourself, you know, untangled and and set back up. But, you know, that's extremely uh, powerful. So. And the other thing to do is I always fly with my seatbelts very tight uh, in a glider or uh, in the tow plane. Uh, I think that's important as well. Casey, do you ever read accident reports, whether tow planes or gliders? Do you ever take a look at what happened maybe over the last year? Does anything stick out in your mind from the last year or two? And if so, could you share it with our listeners? Yeah. So, you know, being from, I have, you know, my foot in both worlds, the, the uh, power world and the, uh, the gliding world. And I definitely do. Uh, read accident reports. Organizations like AOPA or publications like Flying Magazine uh, do a very good job of, of you know, uh, publishing uh, these accident reports and accident analysis. And part of that is because there just are more accidents in in the power world. So I definitely do read accident reports. You know, I would uh, hope that someone didn't die in vain or, or was injured in vain. Uh, and so I think there's a lot that can be learned from accident reports. You know, I, I consume quite a bit of the podcast and, and YouTube videos that do accident analysis. You know, the one that I think particularly comes to mind is I believe it was uh, almost a year ago uh, now to the day that in Northern California, there was a, uh, a fatal accident with a, a tow plane and a glider. And I believe the, the glider got too high initially on takeoff. And I, I don't know if there's been any report published on this yet, but the tow pilot was killed in that incident. And um, it was a, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a reminder for me um, to um, you know, be be ready to pull my release. Uh, in we have we have three Pawnees, and just because of the nature of, of their towing mechanisms, they all have a different um, release handle. So one is a guillotine, uh, and the other two are just uh, uh, releases, and they all have their handles in different positions. So that day when I'm flying that aircraft, you know, certainly before I do my first tow, I consciously I touch that handle. And I remind myself that that could save my life and that I know exactly where it is kind of by muscle memory. So I never have to look at it and I never have to, you know, or I never reach in a a different spot where maybe uh, the handle is on a different aircraft. So that goes back to that being spring loaded and and understanding that. But yeah, that was that, you know, fatality was a, was a reminder of uh, the importance of being ready to do that because fortunately I haven't had a lot of need to, to cut, uh, people away. In fact, I think I've only ever done it uh, twice, and in both instances, it was it was a pretty benign scenario. I think one time my fuel cap was uh, leaking a little bit, and that's on the the nose of the aircraft, so it was spraying fuel all over my windscreen. And I was only at about forty knots, and and so I realized that was happening, and I realized I didn't want to continue the tow, spraying myself in fuel. 
Um, so uh, first thing is I kept the power in because I don't want the glider to run into me. Uh, but, um, you know, made sure that uh, they were in a good position to release and we were only five feet above the runway and actuated the release, you know, and, and I made sure I continued straight ahead uh, and then displaced uh, to the left. And, you know, then I cut power and, you know, touched down again. And fortunately, I had plenty of runway. So it was a it was a non-event. But, yeah, it's a, a good reminder that you, you know, I can I can do that. I know you had talked a little bit about it already, but maybe sh- share a little bit more about the glider port there and maybe the overall operation and mission. And what drew you to it? And what do you what do you like about towing there? Yeah, um, I I have uh, I owe a lot to the Soaring Academy um, as far as uh, getting me back into flying and keeping me in flying. Uh, in 2010, I got my tailwheel endorsement, and shortly after that, stopped flying completely until about uh, 2016. Uh, and I had I had started flying gliders in uh, 2007, but I had never completed my license, and I had a, a six or seven year hiatus from flying. Um, and so I had, I had flown at that site, uh, under a previous owner. And when I made the decision to get back into flying, I said, the first thing I was going to do was I was going to complete my, my private glider license. Cause I, you know, gliding really had taken a, had, uh, left an impression with me. And so I came out and the, and the soaring Academy was new to me. It's such a great place to, to fly. I mean, their mission is they're a flight school. They are, uh, they do wounded veteran flights. Uh, and they do introduction courses for eighth graders uh, as part of a science, technology, education, mathematics program. And I have to say, when when I work those events, when it's the the middle schoolers and the uh, or the Boy Scouts that come out, sometimes those are some of my most favorite events because I see myself in those kids and uh, and you know some of the excitement they have for for going up in a glider. And you know, when I was 13 years old, I I would have done anything to have gone for, for a ride in a glider. So, uh, I, I enjoy that so much and I enjoy the community that I have out there. You know, it's great. I get to, to go out, you know, any, pretty much any weekend I want fly the tow plane or sometimes fly a glider. And, um, I get to scratch that, that, that flying itch, but also too, it's a, it's just a tremendous community to be a part of. And I, I really do like that. I, I like, you know, when I'm not towing, I like talking with the students, you know, giving them feedback, giving them advice. You know, there's a lot of experienced instructors there, so I have a great opportunity to learn things, learn lessons, and so yeah, that it's uh, in the power world. People talk about the hundred dollar hamburger. You know, you rent a plane and you, you you fly you know 50 miles away and you you go to eat somewhere, um, and being a part of uh, the soaring academy and towing for them and and flying gliders there, it just it adds a whole new dimension to uh, to why I fly. Yeah, I totally understand. I was out there for the stem event and seeing those kids excited to go up in the air and then watching them when they landed and getting out of the glider they were just so excited and happy to be in the air it was very cool yeah it's uh some of my the, the I, I fly rides as well and some of the the, the rides that have flown have been the, the most fun with kids uh, as well as the wounded veterans i have some you know very memorable powerful experiences with with flying some of our wounded vets made me be extremely thankful that i i have the privilege of, of flying out there so we have a fairly new segment we started called our lightning round. I'm not sure if Mitch mentioned it to you or not. Basically, I asked you a question and I'll give you some options. You can choose one. You can expand on it if you choose, or you can pass and go to the next one. So what do you think? You ready? I, I am I am ready. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I already know the answer to this, but 
Pawnee or Pipe or Super Cub? Uh, I think I'm going to try to throw you a curveball here. I get to fly the Pawnee all the time. I've only got uh, maybe five hours in a, in a Super Cub. So I would want to fly the thing I, okay. I don't get to fly a lot. Now, I, I love the Pawnee and it flies great. But yeah, I would love to get time in a, in a Super Cub. Uh, basically, whatever I haven't flown, that's what I want to get get time and, and get experience in. That's cool. I get that. Assuming the glider port doesn't have super great low altitude land out options, you have a glider with a low hours pilot behind you on tow. The air brakes pop out 50 feet over the runway, but it seems to be still climbing. Do you cut them off immediately or do you try to dig it out and keep going and let them get some altitude and see what happens? Definitely, definitely dig it out with them. Uh, you know, that's again, one of those things where I, I don't want to make the situation worse. Even if we weren't climbing, uh, but we had sufficient terrain clearance and, you know, all you need is a few feet to get over the power lines at the end of our runway. So even, even if I was able to maintain level flight uh, and he, he wasn't immediately going to kill me or she wasn't going to immediately kill me, I would, I would do, you know, I, I've got the engine. I'm, I'm going to make it out of there, you know, no problem, assuming my engine continues running. So uh, I'll do everything I can to keep them with me. Uh, and I would only ever cut away, like I said, if, if I get to full uh, control displacement and I have no more control left to, to correct something they're doing wrong or, you know, having them uh, stay behind me would, you know, contribute to, to furthering the, the danger. Um, so I definitely dig it out with them. Fly with gloves in the summer or not? I never have. Uh, I think I mentioned before, like my, my hands get cut up from different pieces of safety wire and little sharp edges in the airplane. I, I think that's why I would fly with them. Uh, when I'm in the glider, I normally just pour a little water on the, uh, the seatbelts because uh, they, they get very hot in the, uh, in the Mojave Desert. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll leave burn marks. So, But I uh, haven't yet. Maybe, maybe I will. Gloves in the wintertime for sure. Ski gloves. Yeah, definitely. Use sunscreen or just cover up everywhere and go for the tan? Oh, no. <laughs> I think um, growing up in Michigan, I, I probably would have said, oh, no, I'll just go for the tan because you only get three months of summer there. But yeah, now that I've lived in Southern California so long, no, I'm uh, full long sleeve shirts, uh, long sleeve pants, uh, baseball cap, uh, usually something on my neck. And then the heaviest sunscreen that I can uh, muster, I think, you know, it's 60, 70 or 80 SPF. I, I wouldn't leave anything to chance. Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, or just don't ever really use oxygen? I, I have never used oxygen. Uh, you know, I, I abide by the, you know, above 12,5 for more than 30 minutes and, uh, and 14,000. So I abide by that. It would, if I got into maybe private glider ownership and, and had my own oxygen system, I'd probably wear it, you know, probably above five. I know personally out hiking in the mountains that about eight or 9,000 feet, I really, uh, notice the uh, impact on, on the lack of oxygen when I'm hiking. You know, the tow plane, um, you know, the highest I might get is 8,500, 9,000 feet. And that's only just briefly. So I uh, don't have a lot of opportunities to use it. Yeah, we had talked uh, before on the podcast about the misconception, because like you said, that hiking, if you're going to be up there for long periods of time, you may only be at eight or 9,000, but it definitely affects you the longer you're up there. Sure. And I would I would probably even invest in a, in a pulse oximeter um, rather than uh, just, you know, relying on maybe how you feel, you know, using something a little more Absolutely. empirical. Favorite soaring book? I have not read a lot of uh, soaring books, but it, it would probably be Dale Masters. Uh, he has a, a book uh, called Soaring. And I know Dale. I, I learned to fly from Dale. Um, and Dale does a, a, a short story generally every week as part of our 
our e-newsletter. And I always enjoy listening to, uh, to Dale uh, tell a story. Uh, and so I know he's been on your podcast. And uh, yeah, so favorite soaring book, definitely. Who is your favorite YouTube glider pilot? Man, I, I love glider YouTube. Uh, I, I Even when I wasn't flying, I, I got uh, sucked into it. You know, I think everyone knows uh, Bruno uh, Vassal out of Utah. Uh, right. I, I hope to someday yeah. go uh, fly in Utah. That'd be, it, makes it, it makes it look amazing. Uh, I love the fact that he does that. He might be one of my favorites. Uh, Tim uh, that does Pure Glide down in New Zealand. That's a completely different uh, environment. He, gl- he glides in down there. He's over these verdant green, you know, fields. I don't think he ever gives above 4,000 feet and he just, he goes forever. So I enjoy him. I know there's a, a young guy out of uh, the Netherlands that has a gliding channel that I watch, Stefan Langer. Gosh, I hope I'm not, uh, you know, there was, um, unfortunately he passed away in a gliding accident. I think his name is Matt Wright. And he was, um, I think he went by the YouTube channel and it's still up. I think uh, a Belika, I think is, is how you say it. But he obviously, he was from the UK. He had a real passion for not only gliding, but, but filmmaking. And he uh, created some, some beautiful gliding videos. And unfortunately the way the YouTube algorithm works is I don't think he's making, you know, he's not making any new content. So I, I don't think his stuff's getting promoted as much, but if, you know, your listeners want to go back and, and look at some, and I think he, he passed away in 2018, but fantastic uh, videos of, of him gliding in the UK. Do you just soar locally for fun or set tasks and goals for yourself? So um, I actually, I, I did think about this one recently. I haven't flown solo in a glider in probably three years. Uh, I generally always have someone with me. Um, if I can't find a, fl- a friend to go gliding with me, uh, then I might have a passenger as part of a, as part of a ride, or I'll take, you know, one of the line guys or another instructor, uh, out at the, uh, at the glider port. Uh, and so generally it's just for fun. Uh, I'm just, you know, flying with some for fun, you know, as far, I don't set like a formal task, I think like, uh, like, like bad stuff, but I might, you know, if I get high enough, I'm going to fly, you know, uh, 10 miles away to, to Mount Baldy, which is 10,000 feet and check out the hikers there, or, you know, might fly into the, the, uh, dry lake beds that are north of our airport. But no, generally, it's just always uh, always for fun. Uh, again, if I had a, a private glider, I think I would definitely get into some of the OLC contests or maybe even eventually uh, you know, racing uh, in a competition. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Landau, you have two options only. Busy class Charlie Airport near a big city or relatively short but probably landable farmer's field. Yeah, I'm going to go for the, uh, people might disagree, the class Charlie. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a, a power pilot in Southern California, so I have plenty of experience uh, dealing with uh, air traffic control and, and busy airports. Uh, I've even landed at a class uh, Bravo uh, airport before in a Cessna 172. I went to oh, Phoenix wow. Sky Harbor at night. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as far as the, I think the biggest hassle there would be getting your glider uh, out of there. But sure, I, yeah. I would, I would uh, you know, call them up and, and land. Uh, hopefully I you know, never get in that situation because I demonstrate enough you know, superior uh, airmanship to to not get into that situation. But yeah, I would I wouldn't hesitate to land at a, a class Charlie. So you have to land out slight uphill with fifteen knot tailwind or slight downhill with fifteen knot headwind. Uh, always uphill. If if you can see that it's uphill or downhill from the air, it's probably much steeper than you already think. Uh, I think it's almost impossible to stop an aircraft going downhill. And you know, as soon as you touch down and, and kind of friction takes over. The, the tailwind becomes less and less of an issue. So always, always uphill. 
When do you check pressure in the main tires? Is it per flight, per day, per month, or when it looks low? When the, when the line guy tells me my tire looks low, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I, I, I it's part of my pre-flight. I do look at the tires in the glider and in the tow plane. But yeah. sometimes someone will say, hey, you're, you know, it's looking a little bit low. Or, uh, you know, I've certainly had it before where I can't taxi off the runway because I've I've flattened a, a main tire in a glider. So, but uh, yeah, when, when the line guy tells me. <laughs> What is your emergency plan when the tow plane power fails on takeoff roll at 40 knots? So uh, at 40 knots, I wouldn't even be off the ground yet. I think the stall speed on the Pawnee is uh, right around 50 knots or so, 53 knots. And uh, I won't come unstuck until 60 knots. I'll hold it on to 60 knots. So at 40 knots, um, it actually accelerates very quickly. At 40 knots, I would um, I, I, uh, obviously pull the release and, uh, and I would displace left. Uh, and hopefully the glider will displace right, uh, do a right-hand turn. But yeah, just just roll straight ahead. Um, I have to say that would you know, probably be a non-event at 40 knots. What kind of music do you associate with soaring? Man, uh, I, I haven't I haven't listened to a lot of music while, uh, while soaring or while flying. Uh, it would be whatever it's on my Spotify playlist, which is probably, embarrassingly enough, a lot of pop music. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I guess that's what I associate with with, uh, with soaring. Uh, yeah, so, something you know off the top forty charts. Flaps or no flaps? In, in a glider, uh, I'd I'd love to have flaps. Something something more to tweak. You know, in the uh, in the Pawnee, all they do is they don't really generate much more lift. They just kind of add a bit more drag. And if there's any yeah. kind of crosswind or or uh, even strong headwinds, I won't use any uh, flaps. So, but in a glider, yeah, I'd love to have a flap ship. Just to, one more thing to tweak. Wave or convergence? Oh, convergence. Uh, at least the convergence that I've been in. Like I said, uh, blasting around, uh, you know, flying at 80 knots, trying to come down. You're still going up four or five knots, and it's widespread. I mean, the, the lift is uh, sometimes in the in the summer in the desert, we'll get some overdevelopment. And just before that, uh, you can you can fly for miles in lift. So, and you don't have to deal with the uh, the rotor. Bucket hat, baseball cap, bandana. Or free bird, no top. Uh, always a always a baseball cap, especially in the uh, in the tow plane. That's just my preference. I've tried bucket hats. If nothing else, they're just ugly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm I'm always in a, in a baseball cap. Uh, I think if if bucket hats were compulsory to gliding, I I might give up. Uh, I might give up gliding. <laughs> I don't know. I can't do the bucket hat. I've tried a couple times. I was like, I, I just got to wear a baseball cap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? I've done them all. Uh, I have to say, uh, I soloed in a Blahnik, and I, I have size 13 feet, and I couldn't, I couldn't get them in the footwells with my my shoes on. So I'll, even when I was solo, I would take my shoes off and I put them in the back seat uh, huh. to fly solo, and I'd fly barefoot. Okay. And this is in the summertime in the desert, but I, I right, bring the right. shoes with me just just in case I landed out and had to walk out. Uh, in wintertime, I'll wear like a heavier hiking boot because it does get cold, and then typically. Yeah. Just uh, tennis shoes, yeah. Water bottle or Camelback? Uh, if I'm working the ground crew, I'll, I'll bring a Camelback. I, I made the mistake I thought when I was very early on of, of putting a Camelback in the back of a Grobe uh, 102 in a little cargo compartment, and I thought I was so <laughs> cool. Uh, it was this new new thing I had, and I was going to stay hydrated in the summertime heat. And uh, I drank like three liters of water over the course of a three hour flight in a glider, and. Uh, I, I landed and I opened the canopy and I told the, the line kid, he, I said, you have to hold the glider. I have to run. I had to use the bathroom that bad. So uh, <laughs> generally now just a water bottle. Yeah. 
Okay, so pee to pee bag, diaper, or just hold it as long as you can, then land and pee under the wing out of sight. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably just hold it as long as you can. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to set any records now, so I would fly as, as long as I was comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Pure glider or motor glider? Yeah, I mean, all I've ever flown is is, is pure glider. Um, but I think you know, if, if you think you know, everyone does it, they they go on wings and wheels, and they imagine if they had a, a you know, won the lottery or whatever. I, you know, something like uh, a, a jet sustainer would be something pretty cool. I think to something pretty unique. Oh, so yeah, yeah I would cool. if I could afford it. Um, yeah, it would, uh, it would it would definitely be fun to use. Um, and certainly in the environment in Southern California that we fly in, it would be really nice to know that you know, you wouldn't have to do an arrow retrieve or you wouldn't have to have a ground crew come get you. So yeah, I'd, I'd go for a motor glider. The, the other one I, I thought about, I, or the other one I thought about too was um, uh, in the ideal situation, I would have a, a girlfriend or wife that had her power rating and she would have a Cessna 182 set up as a, as a tow plane. And that way I could just do my, my, my out cross country land and then just call her up and she come pick me up. I think that'd be the ideal setup. You know, that, and that could be considered date night. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, day and night. <laughs> 15 meter, 18 meter, or 20 meter? Huh. Uh, you know, realistically, what I'm going to be able to afford is, is probably a 15 meter. So I'll just set my, my uh, sights on uh, 15 meters. You can get a lot of performance with 15 meters. And uh, I probably wouldn't keep my glider clean enough yeah. uh, as far as like bugs and dirt on the, uh, on the leading edge to notice any performance difference. So 15 meter. <laughs> <laughs> Vario sound on or off in sync? Yeah, I've, I've never flown with an audible Vario. I, I would probably leave it on. I, I do like the the idea of just being able to keep your head outside the cockpit and and not have to look inside to know what's going on. And uh, yeah, I, I would leave uh, audio on. Last time you looked at a compass in a glider? Uh, uh, probably taking someone for a ride and they asked me what that was or if that was the compass. I Yeah, I... I've never, I don't think looked at a glider, uh, or looked at a compass in a glider. In, in a power plane, I will, especially flying instruments. You're always resetting your uh, directional gyro to the magnetic. But uh, I'm trying to think on the on the glider I fly, even where it's located on the panel. I probably can't even picture it. <laughs> Condor, fancy video game or legit teaching and learning tool for pilots of all levels? Uh, l- legit teaching tool. Uh, if you'd asked me maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, I think when like Microsoft Flight Sim was all the rage. Um, and in the power world, you'd say, no, it's a distraction. Uh, uh, people that fly simulators, they look at their instruments too much when they go up in a, in a power plane, they need to be, you know, flying the attitude of the aircraft, looking at the horizon outside. But, uh, we have Condor at, um, at our site with the virtual reality. And I know, um, in fact, we have a, a STEM event tomorrow and I know that the kids will use that. And in fact, some of them get so good in Condor that when they go up, it's just a natural extension for them to be able to to fly the aircraft. So I think it's a tremendous uh, teaching tool. I think it's used in the right way. Uh, I personally have only flown it, I think twice. Uh, and I managed to land both times. Thankfully that was going to be the, the biggest <laughs> embarrassment. It, it, it was incredible. I just, I don't have time and kind of the, the resources to uh, spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's a, it's a great teaching tool. And I would encourage people if they, you know, if they can't actually get out and soar and, and that's how they get their fix, definitely use it. And the VR is absolutely amazing. It just takes you another whole step. I mean, it's oh. just, yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy. Steak, chicken, salmon, or tofu? 
Huh, yeah, you know, I think people think I am living in uh, Los Angeles. I'm going to say tofu, and there's some great tofu dishes <laughs> you can have. Uh, yeah, I, I like a good steak um, as a special treat, but uh, I'm definitely not a picky eater. That's for sure. IPA, stout, golden ale, or American lager? It would it'd probably be something like a golden ale. I, I think I, I'm not uh, a big uh, drinker. Yeah, every now and then I, I'll have uh, have a beer. But uh, yeah, it'd be something like a gold. The the IPA is just uh, you know too too hoppy. So I, I will in a pinch, but uh, yeah, gold nail. Casey, finally, we always like to give guests a chance to give a shout out to people who have helped them along the way in their soaring journey. Friends, family, mentors, airport operators, anyone you like to thank? Uh, you know, obviously my uh, my parents uh, encouraged me from a very early age uh, to to fly. So I, I I think even when I finally got checked out to fly the tow plane. I believe I called them up and I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm 38 now. And I think I said to him, I said, Hey, you know, uh, I'm really enjoying doing this towing thing. And thank you so much. Cause I'm never going to fly uh, professionally. I said, thank you so much for, you know, allowing me to kind of uh, partake in something I'm passionate about. And they were, you know, really uh, integral into getting me into aviation, even though they, they, you know, really have no, no interest in, in flying, um, for recreation. Um, but they were always a big supporter. Uh, and then of course, you know, the, the people at the Soaring Academy, you know, past instructors I've had, people like Dale, tremendously thankful for being patient with me and just giving me the opportunity to be able to uh, to come out and, and you know, I th- I think I'm so clever because I get to go out and fly the tow plane, but uh, you know, it's um, uh, something I'm I'm really thankful for that I'm allowed to 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 do that. So yeah, the, the people at the Soaring Academy, uh, Chris and Julie, have been uh, uh, tremendously uh, gracious and. Kind of, uh, you know, seeing me through my private and commercial uh, glider licenses, and then eventually allowing me to tow out there, and the instructors that are out there as well. It's a, it's a great community. Well, Casey, I've enjoyed talking to you. I know the listeners are going to enjoy hearing your story. Thank you, Chuck. I've I've, I've enjoyed this. Uh, definitely uh, made me had to think about some of the things I, I wanted to put into words. You know, some of the stuff that I maybe just do naturally or just uh, think to do. And it was fun to share that and kind of reflect on. Uh, I think what it takes to kind of run a, a safe uh, tow operation. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think you know you've given a lot of glider pilots a good idea. You know what it feels like to be on the other end of the road too, and and it makes you think about safety more too. So some good stuff. Thanks, Casey. Have a good one. Take care. All right. All right. Have, have a good evening, Chuck. Thanks. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators. Barbara, so happy to have you here again on the podcast. Welcome back. How are you doing? Well, hello. It's really nice to hear you again. <laughs> well, I'm feeling pretty pretty fine at the moment. Um I am I am at the airfield, so feeling fine. Yeah, well, not, nothing nothing basically changed since the COVID nineteen situation, but but yeah, all is good at my side. How are you doing, Chuck? Are you <laughs> good? I'm doing great. Are you able to do some flying? 
uh yeah yesterday i was able to to fly finally uh so um it was really nice day uh so i made just a shorter task uh just for for the first cross country flight of the season and uh yeah i i just found uh the meaning of life again <laughs> oh that's awesome always good to be back in the air now, this is our soaring safety segment, and I wanted to ask you to be on here today so we could talk about safety being one of the most important things we do here on the podcast. But can you talk about a couple of scary moments in your glider and what were the chain events that led up to them and what you learned from those experiences, Barbara? Uh, well, there, there were a few scary moments uh, I experienced during my flying, uh, and most of them were during during uh, an outlanding. So um, I got myself into the situation uh, or all the situations I went went through. So um, it was probably my wrong decision uh, to go further, uh, to leave the area of uh, suitable fields to land. Maybe something pushed me towards the, the decision, the wrong decision. Maybe the first, first experience that comes up to my mind is um, landing out a few years ago uh, on a quite short field. It was, it was just, um, just a grass field, slightly uphill. And it ended with a forest. There were the the weather was really difficult on that day because there were some spread outs and um, the cumuluses were really really big. Speaking about the area, so it was really hard to find the thermal that made them up. Finally, um, as I wasn't able to find a, a thermal, uh, I was forced to land, and uh, the decision to land was made really really um, late. That was the reason I, I wasn't really thinking about where to land uh, in advance. So uh, I chose uh, this one field. Uh, and uh, as there was a shadow uh, on the ground, uh, I didn't, didn't really see how bumpy the, the field is. So once I was landing, I hit the big bump. It was a really hard landing. So that was my mistake that I didn't check the, the field in advance. So I think that uh, that was the moment I realized that uh, I really should think about landing options, even if I don't really need to land. So um, that was the lesson learned for the first time. Also, once I had, uh, I had uh, the experience from from um, Hungary, from um, pre worlds, pre junior worlds. Uh, maybe I already talked about it um, in one of our podcasts or interviews. There was a mid air crash uh, of my friend and another competitor, and uh, it was a, in a really big gaggle. So that was the moment I realized that we really should look out, look out, look out, and don't really rely on FLARM or any other anti-collision system. So that was probably second biggest lesson because I remember, I remember the flight pretty much like it happened yesterday because it was really, really scary and uh, the way home was really tough. So yeah, those, th those two, two lessons learned were pretty harsh, but... I survived, the glider survived, my friend survived, and he's continuing flying. He should uh, compete uh, at the European Juniors. 
So yeah, all good. When when everything ends up well, uh, you can you can take the lesson and think about it next time. So competition soaring is much more dangerous than recreational soaring. Why do you think that is, and what gives you confidence to fly in competitions? Uh, well, this question is um, is really like the point between competition um, soaring choice and uh, recreational soaring. Um, I was thinking about this a while ago. Uh, what what like gives me what gives me the confidence uh, to fly competitions? And I think that uh, it is like that spirit that I like competing um, because competing puts you puts you in uh, weather and situations that you wouldn't really choose yourself uh, when you're flying just just for fun from your club. But to me, um, both competition soaring and recreational soaring um, like combines and, and it's like one thing because I enjoy both the same. And um, I would say that both uh, can be the same, um, can put you in the same danger when you let it. So uh, because when you, when you uh, fly during a competition, that there is always that thing that if he goes, then I go. And you can choose if you let yourself to do this or not. And during recreational soaring, um, you, you're not really put into that decision situation. If they go, then I go. But uh, you can you can always force or make yourself do something or do a wrong decision. So um, I think that both are dangerous in the same way if you let it. I think that wh when you're flying competitions, uh, you're more experienced, or maybe if you start flying competitions, competitions, um, you really like need to start with smaller ones just to get used to uh the whole process or the whole day that is way different than when you're flying just from your club and uh then you have to used to uh be in the air with many gliders in a gaggle so i think that this is like the most dangerous thing that you really can't um influence if if you or or of course you can influence it but if you look up and take care of yourself and others as well, then you won't be pushed into any dangerous situation in a gaggle. But if you let uh, the, situ the situation uh, or, um, or, or you let yourself get into the situation that uh, you can influence, but you don't, then it is dangerous. So I wouldn't say that competition, competition soaring is more dangerous than recreational soaring. It's only up to you uh, what you do in the glider. And it's always your decision how, how to cope with the situation or the day. Does the glider port you fly out of most of the time have a safety officer or do they do briefings? Do you find the information useful? What about other operations or clubs in your country? Well, uh, I don't really know uh, how other clubs in my country handle uh, like safety, but I think that it it is more or less the same as we have in my my home airfield. Uh, we have a safety officer who is as well the head of the flight operations at the airfield. 
So uh, he always checks. Uh, he, he is always at the airfield when uh, we're flying or even when only motorized, uh, motorized planes flying. So um, he's always here. And uh, he always checks the, and monitors the situation of the day. And if any incident happens, he always sends us an email or talks about it during some kind of a briefing and uh, how to avoid the situation next time. And uh, so we, we take safety pretty serious because we are an airfield where many gliders and other planes fly. So we have to deal with it. And um, I think that we, we pretty much deal, deal with the situation well as we didn't have any, any incident in the last month. So uh, it is really important to, to have that head of safety at, at the airfield or, or airport, of, of course, because they have that sober attitude to what's happening at the airfield. We, we do briefings, we, we have the information and sometimes sometimes um, we also talk about the incidents that happened somewhere else and uh, what was wrong and how to avoid the situation at our airfield. So I pretty much find the information useful. Absolutely. It's a great idea to talk about things that have happened in other areas and yeah. we can all learn from those Definitely. for sure. Definitely. Can you talk about a couple of specific situations where you were tempted maybe to take some risks that maybe later you realize were not great decisions and you're flying and what type of situations led to most of these higher risk decisions? Well, I think it's always you who puts you in the situation uh, where you're tempted to, to take some risks um, and you just decide if, if you do the risk or not. Uh, there were many really accidents in the past where the pilot took the risk, for example, during the competition soaring, and it ended up badly. And uh, we lost many, many pilots because of this. So uh, I think that uh, it is really only me who decides if I put myself in a risk or not. Uh, sometimes it is, it is, of course, it is not about just safe flying always because sometimes you have to take the risk to um, fly a good good uh, flight during a competition for example but um, there is always this, that, that risk management that is it worth it or it is not worth it so when it's worth it it always means that uh, I don't put myself in the danger or the glider in the danger or others in danger and if I realize that during this management risk I would like put myself or others in danger then I don't do it so I think that the risk management during flight is really important thing to think about even on ground because sometimes uh, you don't really realize that you're doing risk management and um, as an instructor I will be really trying to teach uh, my my students this that they have to think about it uh, they are in a glider they are flying and they are really responsible for their actions this is probably the answer to, to your question, uh, that we are responsible for, for putting ourselves in the risks. So we have to decide ourselves. I totally agree with you. If you observe someone doing something unsafe, whether flying in a competition or maybe at your home glider port saying they're doing a takeoff or landing, how would you typically handle that 
would you go talk to them? How would you approach it? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I actually uh, went through uh, a situation where we almost met, uh, like crashed uh, with, with my friends uh, during uh, a competition. And it it was it was in a gaggle again, and he he had me in in the dead angle, so he didn't see me. So I had to like fly the other way, uh, not to not to crash. So um, I handled it like pretty well. I laughed about it on ground, <laughs> but uh, but I was I was really talking bad language in the air. So. I'm sure. <laughs> so um, I think that that that's that's quite a normal thing. But we talk about it with the friend, and um, like we we went through the situation, what was wrong from his side, if there was something wrong from my side, and. Um, we approach it in a friendly way. And I think that when when nothing happens or nothing wrong happens, this is like the best attitude. Because um, funny thing, um, yesterday there there was one, one guy complaining on a Facebook group that a glider approached him in a really dangerous way while he was flying uh, his um, small powered aircraft. And uh, he was complaining that he was just flying straight and the glider approached him suddenly in, I don't know, out, out, of, out of the universe or something. And he was complaining that the glider didn't turn to not to crash into him. So I was like, oh my God, so you're complaining that you didn't look up or around, your, uh, around you while flying straight and... Um, you you just complained that that you didn't take the safety management and look out of your plane when it's away it's always good to handle the situation in a friendly way and uh not others when they approach you and and say bad language bad language you did bad language bad language yeah and yeah so so it's it's not working yeah, so um, I think that it is always good to handle when nothing happens. It is always to to go, good to handle the situation in a friendly way, to talk through it. Uh, of course, show that you didn't like the situation and you don't want to be put in the situation again. But um, that's that's probably the best way, and that's 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 as well um, when when I see somebody uh, during. Um, during takeoff or landing, some some um, not not really safe maneuvers or something. Um, I approach them in in this way. Now I'm I'm an instructor, so so they they take it pretty pretty well. But uh, sometimes I I go uh, to say our main instructor to to tell them directly not to um, not to be bossing around because I I hate it <laughs> personally. So w when I see something wrong happens, I try to approach it in a friendly way. And um, if if the person doesn't really take it, then I start to be really bad <laughs> and rude. <laughs> but but um, yeah, just a joke. <laughs> but yeah, it is always approached in a friendly way. Do you think some glider ports or clubs take safety more seriously than others? And if yes... Why do you think that is? Is it a regional or a country-specific culture safety thing? Or maybe is it just more specific to individual operations in airports? What's your thought on that? 
Well, I definitely think some glider ports or, or clubs take safety more seriously. Uh, it's it's uh, more or less the location of where, where they are because some glider ports uh, or clubs are situated in uh, quite an interesting terrain. And um, all the clubs or glider ports have different runway uh, width and length. So um, I think that that is the approach to safety more or less, uh, or, or the differences uh, be- between the, gli- the safety on glider ports are more or less because of this. At my uh, airfield, uh, or at my home airfield, uh, we have um, almost eight, 800 meters uh, long runway and 150 meters in width. So we are pretty much used to that we have quite a lot of space or area to land or um, to do some maneuvers on ground as well. So it doesn't make us approaching the safety uh, like less than others, but some IRA clubs uh, have to take some measures or um, they have to uh, maintain some procedures to maintain the safety. So I think those are the differences between the, the airfields. But I think that we take the safety really serious in Czech Republic. It's good. It's very important. We all should take safety a little more serious. You know, it should be something we're constantly thinking about while we're on the ground getting ready to fly. And also, of course, definitely while we're in the air and everyone around us as well. It's it's all of our responsibility mm-hmm. to keep our eyes open. Exactly, yeah. Barbara, thank you for, for those the great information there and some advice about safety. So let's have a little bit of fun. We have a new lightning round. I briefly mm-hmm. talked to you about it, but uh, mm-hmm. so here we go. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what is the I, ho- big- I, hope, I hope that I don't have to answer just by by choosing one or or another <laughs> do it however you like <laughs> if you if oh, you yeah, want okay. if you <laughs> if you want to expand on it you can what is the biggest or heaviest item in your landout kit my snack <laughs> uh, because um, I used to not eat in the glider and not drink in the glider and that's also my safety measures I took uh, because when you don't drink and you don't eat, you're weak. So um, I take this more seriously now uh, from the past few years. And uh, I'm making always jokes about my, my landing kit that is that it is a big snack waiting while waiting for the crew to arrive. But as well, <laughs> but as well as as uh, a big snack, I think that it is um, it is a light because, for example, when when I was in Australia. Uh, I took red red light with me just in case of Landau to find the glider again. So I think this this is the heaviest second after my snack. <laughs> <laughs> Bailout kit strapped to your parachute, in your pockets, or none at all? Uh, definitely, definitely, I I have my bailout kit. But um, I have just a small pocket, like extra pocket, which, which is, uh, it is, it looks like some running pocket uh, to, to put a mobile phone in it or something. So I have it like strapped right, right to me and not my parachute just in case. Nice. Gloves while flying, even in summer? 
Well, sometimes I don't even even wear gloves when I wave fly. So, <laughs> so oh, wow. not not during really not in the summer. But when it's really uh, cold, I I try to get used to it. Okay, oxygen above five thousand, ten thousand, always or never really need for normal conditions where you fly. Well, it depends. Uh, sometimes I feel that I need the oxygen like above three, uh, three kilometers above the ground. And sometimes I, I don't really feel the need at all, but I am always for the oxygen to have it when you, when you plan wave flying. And speaking about uh, check gliding conditions, I don't really remember when I would use use it, <laughs> as uh, the sailing in Czech Republic is flight level nine five, so it's I it's I think on the edge of having the oxygen. Flight preparation day before, morning of. What are the things you most commonly have forgotten over the years? Uh, well, I I prepare myself day before and also during the morning, of course. And um, I usually forget uh, my sunglasses. Yeah, my sunglasses are pre pretty much the common thing to, to forget, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How about your favorite soaring book? Well, speaking about a story, a uh, story soaring book, uh, we have one, one Czech uh, book that was uh, written in the 50s, I guess. And uh, it is a book that uh, tells a story about few guys, uh, like around aged around 15 years old. It uh, tells the story about their um, gliding gliding start, uh, how did they get to the airfield, and um, how they continue their journey. So um, it is more or less a story of 50s gliding, <laughs> and. Um, I think that my favorite book to read is uh, The Soaring Engine, speaking about some studying. So Soaring Engine is the book uh, to read. Yeah. Oh, nice. What would you value more, win a contest or set a record? Well, I value both because um, there are so, so many differences between contest flying and um, setting a world re record flying. So... Both are really valuable um, experiences or or aims, so I value both. Nice, Barbara. Do you fly for speed, distance, or do you not care and just enjoy soaring itself without the metrics, goals, or winning? Well, my aim is always uh, to learn something and to um, to have the feeling that every everything goes smooth and without even trying. So. Even when contest flying, I always try to enjoy uh, enjoy the day, and uh, usually the joy comes with uh, good uh, results. So I always try to enjoy the day, and um, I found myself uh, as a pilot looking for the speed. I really need the, the feel the the feel of speed. So I like more speed uh, flying. But uh, the distance flying isn't really bad at all, <laughs> as you can use the whole day of uh, usable weather conditions. So I think both that's the same as the contest or setting a world like record. Uh, that's that's the same. Both both have a, it's it's nice sides. So 
<laughs> yeah, both. Landau, you have two options. Busy Towered Class Charlie Regional Airport or a relatively short but probably landable farmer's field far off the beaten track. Ah, oh, that's a really harsh question. <laughs> uh, well, maybe maybe, maybe I would be able to, to fit in the busy regional airport, but uh, as I've heard few stories about uh, landing at a busy airport, um, I would probably try to avoid it <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah. so so um, if there there is any landable farmers field, I would try try that probably uh, rather than a busy regional airport when where uh, they would need to put other other planes away just for me to land. So <laughs> yeah, emergency. You have two options: jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Oh, another hard question. <laughs> well, as I was, uh, as, as I, <laughs> well, as I was, as, as I was um, uh, back in the days, I was uh, reading a story of landing um, on a beach by Mister uh, Matt Wright, who is not here already, but uh, he wrote about his uh, his experience uh, quite quite a lot, uh, quite a lot, and. Um, I've also heard some stories that when you land in a lake, for example, in Finland or somewhere uh, north in, in Europe, where uh, in, in the country of lakes, uh, you can you can freeze to death uh, before 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 you can uh, swim uh, to to the shore. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, uh, but I always uh, I was always thinking about this, and I prefer landing in the glider rather than jumping out of it. So maybe I would try to to land in 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 this situation, but um, it always depends on the exact situation. Jumping out yeah. with a parachute from a working glider or a plane is something totally silly to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. So you have to land out. There's a slight up, slight uphill with 15 knot tailwind, or slight downhill with a 15 knot headwind. Well, if there is just a slight downhill, and I trust my glider is is in perfect condition and the brakes works, I would probably choose um, downhill with 15 uh, knot headwind. But uh, because I, I suppose there would be probably some like bigger wind strikes. But um, it always depends on um, how how the field is situated. If there is any anything like at the end of it, if there would be, uh, for example, a forest, I would think about this twice or maybe th three times uh, before I would make the final decision. When do you check the pressure in the main tire? Per flight, per day, per month, per season, or when it looks low? Uh, well, I always check it uh, per, uh, like before flight and after flight if there were some changes. So I would say that I, I, ch I check it basically every day I fly. So what is your emergency plan when the tow plane power fails on takeoff roll at 40 knots? Well, depends on the on the airfield where where I fly from. Um, the situational awareness is the key in this case, I would say. When it happens, like at my, um, if I put it like in in the comparison with my airfield, which is quite quite long and um, quite um, quite wide, 
uh, there would be definitely no no issue to just release immediately and roll uh, out of the runway or away from the runway, not to hit the, the tow plane. But uh, yeah, there are some airfields where it could be it could be a problem. So I think that this depends on the on the airfield or the strip where you fly from. Absolutely. Okay, so what is your favorite soaring video? Oh my God, there are so many. <laughs> I have a list. <laughs> I have a list of uh, yeah. I I called it a gliding porn. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So uh, I have a list of my favorite uh, soaring videos on YouTube, but um, uh, and I, of course, as I already uh, spoke about him, Matt Wright has really amazing videos, uh, which I find really, um, really interesting. But lately, uh, I I quite like the video from uh, Stefan Langer from flying uh, on the shore of New Zealand. That was pretty amazing. So that is probably my favorite now. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorites. It's, it's such a cool video for sure. So beautiful. Yes, it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what music do you associate with soaring? Would it be classical, opera, rock, hip hop, or maybe something else? Or do you just like the sound of the chirping vario? Well, uh, there is no better sound in the world than chirping vario, is it? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <Right>? but <laughs> yeah, but um, I have some some um, music or particular songs that I associate associate with with gliding, but um, it is like across the whole um, music area, classical, not opera, but rock, definitely. So I have some 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 music mostly from some gliding videos that I associate with gliding. Nice. And sometimes yeah, and sometimes the the lyrics make me feel about uh, make me feel thinking about flying when I'm on ground. So sometimes it's the lyrics, sometimes it's the beat and sometimes it is um already a gliding video music, so it is more, more or less those things. Ah, very cool. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you here on the podcast. And just a quick question. What's the future look like as far as the the season goes for your competition flying? Because I'm presuming you're still on the Czech team, right? Uh, yeah, I'm still in the Czech team. And luckily enough, uh, thanks to, to our Czech NAC, uh, now we are able to uh, fly officially uh, because... Um, as the COVID-19 measures in the Czech Republic are pretty strict, uh, only professional uh, glider, uh, sorry, only professional sportsmen can can train. Um, so uh, our NAC uh, is trying the best to make the flying possible for everybody again. So um, at the moment, we are really glad that we can fly because it looked pretty bad at the beginning uh, of, of March. And uh, speaking about the competitions, we are now, we are now uh, thinking about um, the measures we would, we would take to make uh, Czech competitions, like national competitions, uh, possible to, to happen. At the moment, the COVID nineteen really, really made the situation, or made the situation hard for for everybody in the world. Of course, we are glad that we can fly, and we will see what happens with the with the competitions. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. Uh, we will be checking in with you again and take care. <laughs> yeah, it was my pleasure. <laughs> my pleasure talking to you again, Chuck. Thank you. Author and glider pilot Dale Masters now brings us another soaring tale with Dale. And this one's titled... We head into Foggies. We were in wave about a mile above cloud tops when we noticed the cloud thickening and the good lift weakening, even as it crept forward upwind. When you first think about that, it doesn't seem to make sense. Clouds ordinarily shrink when lift weakens, and waves that migrate almost always move downwind. These anomalies made us look close, and then, after thinking carefully, it got more interesting. Earlier, there had been just one layer of broken cloud between us and the Earth, and ample avenues for descent. But while pointing out that a second layer had formed above it, we spied a third layer hiding under a more greenish shade, the signature of ground fog. At once, the sole mission was seeing how quickly we could get down. Even diving with full spoilers, we had several huge spirals to better observe and understand what was happening. Our wave wind had been from the south, but while we faced most in that direction, very different weather was encroaching from behind us. As our local wave flattened, converging winds on a larger scale generated broad uplift everywhere, swelling clouds into a thickened mass. We had to fly some distance away for a neat passage back to the airport and got there barely in time. Fog was rolling up the runway before we finished securing our bird. And here's the thing. I've now experienced the same kind of rapid sea change while high aloft at three different soaring sites. So the question is not if, but where and when it will occur again. Thank you, Dale. We now join Daniel Sazen in Blairstown, New Jersey, for our tips and techniques segment here on Soaring the Sky. Daniel Sazen, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you again today. How have you been? I've been wonderful. Thanks for having me. Great. Always happy to be here. So you've been doing some flying. I've checked out your latest blog, of course, The Soaring Economist. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I've, you know, we're we're flying to Blairstown. We've been having a pretty nice season. Ridge kicked in. Thermals have been nice. Um, I've had a couple nice flights and uh, 126 and otherwise. But uh, one that was particularly remarkable or noteworthy was a recent flight I had with uh, Jen in the Grobe, where we went up for actually not much more than a half hour, but we uh, had some really nice soaring conditions. That was probably more like 40 minutes, but nonetheless. But we had nice soaring conditions and, uh, you know, and, uh, and then found some eagles to fly with. Oh, very cool. Well, for Jen, uh, she, uh, you know, she really, 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 really loves eagles. You know, and I, I and I, I say, you know, and I, I say this meaning that in a way that like it was her favorite animal since she was four years old. Wow. So, you know, so like, you know, her favorite sports team is the Eagles. <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, so probably one of the reasons she ended up in Philly in the first place. It, um, like anything, any anything Eagle, she's really, really happy about. And so, you know, the the number of times I've taken up her up flying, you know, it makes it my mission to to go and find eagles to fly with, so she can really experience that. So we we managed to do that last year, and uh, 
it, that, that was one of the most magical experiences for her, you know, certainly. So, I, you know, it, 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 so when the first time she came out to fly uh, with me this year, that was certainly my mission. And uh, sure enough, you know, she looks down after we thermaled around for a little bit and flew, flew a ways and uh, she sees two eagles underneath us. Wow. So and there's certain times of year that they're around more often than others. <laughs> Yeah, so actually, interestingly, the, there's yeah around Blairstown and that's certainly around Cumberland where you fly. Uh, there, there's eagles around. All, um, you can find eagles all year round. They they nest there permanently, and there's a number of places where we routinely see them. Uh, you know, like there's just a like even on our local ridge, there you know there's a there's a, a thermal where you'll often you know you have a pretty good probability of of seeing eagles even uh, pretty much all year round, and we just think that they nest there. Um, but certainly in the springtime in the autumn when you have the the migrations, uh, then your odds of coming across one are considerably greater. And the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. So what are some other times that you've had soaring in the glider that you've been soaring with some feathered friends? Oh, many times it's uh, and I, I particularly, I mean, there, there's all sorts of interesting birds. You know, we get uh, you know red tail hawks or and all the broadwing hawks. They're really fun. You know, when they come in their big thermaline kettles and things like that, and ospreys. Um, but uh, I, I really, really, really like flying with the eagles. They're 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 something else. I mean, you're when you see an eagle in a thermal, you know it's a good thermal. It's not some. You know, it's not it's not a turkey vulture that's leading you astray. <laughs> you know, you yeah. you know that thermal is solid. You know, right. and um, and the thing is, uh, the thing about the eagles uh, is they 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 seem to always be interested in your presence. Like you go and you fly with a red tail hawk, and you know you you they they just sort of shy away and they they want to stay away from the glider. They they don't. Um, they really don't like your presence, and and also that they're, I mean, they're they're not all that smart. <laughs> like, you you go and uh, you know the you, you when you can fly in the ridge, I mean, you, you know, they, you can actually sneak up on them, and they don't even have the situational awareness to realize that you're there. And you know, but the eagle, the eagles are not like that. I mean, they they know everything that's going around them, and um and they they're all they all very different. Um, like uh you know they're. 
you'll some of them you'll kind of fly up to them and then you know they they don't want to be around you and they'll they'll give they they'll give their space but the ones that are familiar with the gliders uh if you fly with them correctly i mean they'll let you fly right up with them and uh that's really cool you know and you and you can they, and they also they know enough to realize that you know the glider uh has you know has some kind of um uh, you know, some kind of animal inside of it, you know, maybe, maybe they know they're, we're human. I don't know, but, uh, they, when they look at the glider, they look at you in the canopy, they look straight in your eyes and, uh, you know, they can tell that that's what's guiding this machine. Right. And, uh, it's, it's always, it's a really magical experience to fly with them. That's for sure. Yeah. I've noticed that a couple of times with the red tailed Hawks, I had one fly across the canopy and he had looked right at me and, and I found that interesting that, like you said, they look right in the canopy. They kind of know. Yeah, though they 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 look right in your eyes. I mean, they they you know they know what eyes are. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and and I've I've actually managed to do quite a bit. Uh, I mean, on ridge days, you're you can spot them pretty frequently at, at some point in your flight if you fly for a while. Thermal days, it's a little bit more hit or miss, particularly when it's a really good thermal day because, you know, when the thermals go higher, there's just that much more <laughs> airspace, you know, where the, you know, the, the, the bird can be. So you actually, I actually find that you come across them much more often on uh, the thermal days that are not quite so strong where they don't go so high, uh, you know, because then everything kind of, all the birds and all the, all the gliders, you know, you, you, you end up getting kind of getting condensed into a smaller zone. Um, and also uh, on days, you know, that uh, are like blue, for example, where you may not have so many thermals. So if you have if you have a weaker day with a lot of thermals, <laughs> right? Then again, you know, the the eagle could be in any one of them. But uh, if the thermals are a little bit more sparse, you're more more likely to encounter them because they're they're looking for the same kind of lift sources that we are. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's that thing, you know, you're up on the ridge and n not much going on, can't really find any lift, and then you spot a couple of hawks, and most most of the time, more than not, you head over there, and sure enough, you get a little bump, get a little lift. Well, I mean, the they're they're doing the same thing that we're doing, except that uh, they have uh, they're they're better at it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> they are the original aviators for sure. That's for sure, you know, flying dinosaurs. So anyway, so Jen uh, spots the two eagles, and uh, I, uh, you know, and I figured, oh man, it's going to be a good opportunity to go by and take a swoop in for a look. And uh, I banked over and pushed over, you know, and uh, th that turned out to be her first experience with a slight uh, partial weightlessness in the glider, and that <laughs> kind of caught her by surprise. Right. Uh, you know, before then I was flying really smoothly and, uh, you know, just trying to be very conscientious. And then I kind of forgot about all that. <laughs> so, you know, and then we were, then we're going along and we're accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. And, the, you know, it's getting louder and louder and louder and louder. And, you know, we get up to about 85 knots and uh, swoop in, you know, to, to just above the bird. And, uh, you, know, I pull, you know, I kind of pull out, you know, pull up and... Uh, uh, of the you know of the de of the descent and uh, <laughs> I I realized she was she it scared her a bit more than I expected you know that was not my intent but uh, we certainly got a close eye you know we we certainly got a, a close view of the bird but you know I, I got the message that uh, not to not to do it quite that way again and we look down and we see uh, the other eagle still cruising along and uh, so this time I just you know kind of lined up with them and uh, pulled the boards out and just came in 
uh, nice and close at a much slower rate. Yeah, <laughs> and, nice. uh, and, th- and that's the video that, uh, you can see on, on the blog where, I mean, we had a, just a, we, you know, got right information with them. It was, it was really, really nice. And, uh, you know, the, the bird, you know, I could see it watching us and we got, just let us get as close as it was going to let us, let us go. And, uh, so long as you come in, uh, above them, Right, so you, you you never want to come in under the bird because if you come in under them, then uh, then you take away their escape path, and that's uh, going to make the bird uncomfortable. But if you, it, so long as you're above them, you're you know you're you can get the, the you're going to get as close as the bird is going to be comfortable with, and then that's that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah uh, exactly. I've all, all sorts of other experiences flying with them, so I mean you know it, you just have to kind of understand what they're what they're comfortable with, and then. Um, and kind of get a sense as to what they're going to do. And then you can do, do quite a bit, you know, you can, they'll, uh, they'll let you get quite close. What is another story that kind of stands out flying with? Sure. Well, I, I, well, man, I have a couple, um, you know, one, one very recent one, I, uh, flew with an, with a golden Eagle for about 10 minutes in a, in a one twenty six. So it was a, my, I was getting recurrent. And, uh, so I, I went and took a one twenty six up, for a couple uh, a couple little short flights and it was a pretty decent thermal day so i managed to climb up off a toe so on the second one i you know i climb up and i uh, kind of this started coming back down and and about i don't know 1500 feet above the airport i start thermaling and i look back over my shoulder and i see you know big honking bird <laughs> you know the golden eagle is a really really impressive bird and uh i've had very 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 few instances of where i actually flew with them but most of the time when you think you're flying with a golden eagle you're actually flying with an immature bald eagle right you know right. it's uh um and they're 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 really not that common around here so that was really magical and uh so i started climbing up and trying to you know and trying to keep up with them and uh the the bird you know and uh, the eagle you know he 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 got right off my seven o'clock you know he really was very happy to <laughs> stay right back there you know and uh keep a keep a be keep a good eye on me you know and uh right. he you know managed to outclimb me because you know he's in the, the better part of the thermal and i'm and i'm really wanting to catch up to him you know so i go and i watch him when he leaves and I stay in the thermal for a couple more turns and get a little bit higher, and and then and then I go chasing after him, and I manage to ju- almost catch him up on the run, you know, because uh, the the one twenty six, the 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 eagle is probably about fourteen fifteen to one, but you know, one twenty six is a high performance glider in relation to them, but uh, you know, we did this for a couple iterations, um, you know, one a couple like one a couple miles, uh, trying you know did, you know kind of doing this little dance, and finally. He he went over to one spot, made a little bit of a mistake, and I kind of climbed up a little bit more. And then I just caught him. You know, I came right up on his tail, just a little bit above, and you know, and he slides over to my wingtip, halfway down my wing, down you know, halfway down my wing, and uh, goes out his merry way. So I had a really nice encounter with a golden eagle. And uh, and the other one uh, that was really memorable was in the Pilatus on a southeast day. I've flown the Pilatus only twice, it's, but it's a lovely glider. And I've flown it for a couple hours in the southeast ridge. And it's a very smooth, nice ridge. And there was a bald eagle working uh, his way down to um, – working his way down south, migrating. And uh, I caught him kind of at the north end of our local ridge. And I, and I just went and flew with him for half an hour. You know, and just every time I, you know, he's cruising along at about 35 miles an hour. And every time I gently pass him, I turn around and then come back. And we did the, we basically flew in formation for 
I don't know, about 15 miles. Wow. And, uh, you know, and then after I escorted him through our uh, airspace, our domain, I waggled my wings and turned around and went back. <laughs> and he went on his merry way. <laughs> yeah. Nice. No, it's it's magical experiences flying with these majestic birds and uh, and the eagles. They're a lot of fun, you know. They're 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 you know they they they, they appreciate they appreciate the art of, of soaring. That's quite a, for for sure. Well, I'm going to put some show notes in here for that video, definitely of the eagle mm. and um, those pictures you put up. Well, as well, are really cool. So. Yeah, put those in the show notes. Well, uh, Jen, Jen gets the credit. You know, I did the flying from the back seat, but uh, she, she was the one who uh, got that really, really cool video, and she was, you know, ecstatic. Yeah, <laughs> when I watched sure. it, I was like, "Wow, they they got pretty close to the eagle." That you just don't get those shots every day, not in the glider. No, no, but uh, that it's a lot of fun flying with them. Absolutely, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us again. It's always fun to hear about your latest blog and catch up with you yeah my pleasure thanks for having me absolutely stay in touch all right will do here's my oops i'm landing out now flight story it was a gusty february day in antelope valley soaring but my cfi cindy brickner taught me how to adjust my takeoffs and landings for just that kind of windy weather it wasn't a good lift day, a typical February winter desert day, but I was told and had heard that a good winter pilot, able to stay up in one to two knot thermals, makes a much better summer pilot. So I was focused on playing in those weak one to two knot thermals I had just bumped into, and I was over the IP at Antelope Valley soaring our field. However, I was only at 1800 feet AGL. Three turns later, and I was suddenly not over the IP anymore. Luckily, just 1.5 miles downwind of ABSC is the original, now historic, soaring site known as Cray Field. For five seconds, I looked west towards ABSC to consider returning home, but quickly determined that was a no-go. Current altitude now being at 1200 AGL. I knew a bit about Cray because during air summertime, nice thermal flying with Cindy, we had discussed landing at Cray and looked at it from a nice comfortable you know, 6,000 plus feet. We were able to clearly see the runway and determine that looks pretty good. No obstacles, no trees, no new shrubs growing up. Looks pretty doable. So at this point I had my butt directly over the 2-6 runway at about 900 feet and I knew that it was just time to get down. I knew there was 12 to 15 mile an hour headwind, so I stuck my nose down to keep my speed up and to make an abbreviated pattern. There was definitely no time for the typical downwind base and final. Though I had to make a fairly sharp tight turn, I knew also to keep my speed up and not over rudder so I wouldn't end up as a uh, one of those pilots who took and made a too hard right turn and ended up stall turn into the ground. Luckily I was again just over that runway, actually had to make a little bit of slipping to final, centered the runway and down I went into a fairly nice, relatively smooth but a little bit bumpy old gravel field. Immediately got on the phone, called my president, said, John, 
guess what? I've landed out. I'm at Cray. He was able to quickly jump in his car. There was access to the field. And he arrived and had already called our tow pilot and said, hey, we got somebody landed out at Cray. So our fairly new tow pilot came zipping over, made a couple of low passes to check the landability, determined that it was perfectly fine to land the tow plane. Down he came, hooked me up, took a very dusty tow out of Crayfield, and in a matter of a few minutes, I was back to AVSC, made a standard, regular pattern landing, and all was good and happy. So there's my first land out, oops, I'm landing out story. Hope you guys uh, will enjoy that. Thank you, Chris, for leaving us a story there on the website. If you want to share one of your stories here on Soaring the Sky, we now have a brand new feature. Just go to SoaringTheSky.com, click on the Contact Us, scroll down, you'll see a microphone, and record us a story so you can share it with others in the community right here on Soaring the Sky. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Come back and join us once again here on the podcast. So until next time, stay healthy. Stay safe and happy soul. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.